If you're looking for a hunting and fishing podcast that celebrates wild food ingredients and how to acquire them, check out the Food Afield podcast. We take you into the field with us while we adventure for food in the backcountry. The focus is on traditional bow hunting and fly fishing, but we explore all of the ways to fill your freezer. You can listen to the Food Afield podcast on Spotify and Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Well, I, I should have hit record way earlier because we had the, the coolest conversation um, off, off air on this one. To sum it up, Matt has this great idea of coming up with a Canadian um, hunting cocktail or, or maybe the hunter conservationist cocktail, something that represents, um, I, I could, I could say it would be go regional based cause Canada's so big, uh, a drink that would reflect regional hunting culture. And, um, we, we could maybe label some hunter conservationist cocktails and, and, uh, get folks giving us ideas or whatever so it was that was a fun conversation i should i should have hit record earlier and that's fine i i think the there's a long and cherished history probably globally amongst hunters following a successful hunt and and or harvest to toast the occasion and in some places it's an all-night affair. So <laughs> why not, why not celebrate Canadian hunting culture with a recognized set of regionally described beverages that uh, hunters will be able to associate with the broader and longer hunting traditions and experiences we all enjoy? I, I think that's... I think that's mm -hmm. pretty cool. I mean, something a little more advanced uh, that has meeting and some different ingredients and stuff than just a beer and aluminum can, which is probably <laughs> uh, probably the iconic one, right? Yeah, or 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 if Lee Foot was on, you know, bourbon with a a gator, a, a, a still twitching gator tail, and you know, skunk bile or something. Yeah, we can't have that. That's just too foreign. Well, we can we we can let him introduce it, and then because um, one of the ideas, folks, we had was is to create these iconic Canadian hunting drinks. Is we'd have one of those those drink master TV shows, so pr the participants would come on with their hunting culture drinks, and then each go round we would we would ridicule like the the poor performers and then send them on their way off the show and 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 then do the next episode until we have a winner so i would assume lee would be one of the competitors um with his with his tail that is not representative of canada but of southern u.s culture and a twitching gator tail and um you could be one of the judges yeah i and, would and i would I'd, I'd send him unceremoniously you know back to the blind or back to the hauler or 
wherever it is that he <laughs> came from. <laughs> uh, no, that was a good that was a good conversation. Maybe we'll follow up with uh, the the Canadian hunter conservationist regional cocktail competition or something. I like, like that. that. It's really important. yeah. Now this episode is about wild turkeys, uh, wild turkeys in Alberta. So before we kick off on that, I wanted to ask you: Have you had the opportunity to hunt wild turkeys? in Alberta or elsewhere? So I have had the opportunity to hunt wild turkeys in Montana, but not in Alberta. I am at priority 14, I believe, for wild turkey uh, draw opportunities. And I'm in a cohort. You know, this would have successfully, you know, Ordinarily, I would have been drawn quite successfully, but there's a uh, this glut of of turkey applicant, turkey hunting applicants in the cohort that I'm in. So eventually, I think I'll be drawn either this year or the next once that cohort is cleaned out. But I have not hunted wild turkey um, recreationally in Alberta yet. Okay. Okay, but you're getting there. I am, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it when I was in Montana. Cool. Hmm. Um, did you hunt them in Montana with Lee? No, no. Thankfully, that would have been a complete and utter disaster because he would refuse to use any sort of mechanical aid when it comes to calling. And, and given his musical um, affinities... He would have insisted on his own gobble, his own, you know, scratchy. <coughs> he it just would have, he'd dominate the entire affair. Whether or not a turkey would, would uh, come to the call would be another matter. But <laughs> it would be, it would be exciting. Um, at Christmas, Lee ended up in my living room with his bluegrass band. And uh, I saw those pictures. Yeah, they were, it, they were shockingly they were really really good largely because of the bandmates of course they were highly musically trained and they must have felt pity upon lee to bring his sorry little you know dueling banjo with him i uh, of course i love to hack on lee it's one of my favorite pastimes but lee is actually a studio um quality banjo musician despite his lack of digits on his one of his hands he's exceptionally talented in that regard but don't tell anyone that i said that <laughs> but yeah he he is has an affinity for calling critters and he'd likely be quite good at it but no sadly he he didn't come with me when uh when i hunted turkeys in montana oh okay okay well maybe one time we'll catch up with him and he can fill us in on his on his uh wild turkey hunting experience in in the south yeah, you'll hear a lot about it, I'm sure. Sw swamp turkeys, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they may uh, not even be turkeys. They may be something else that he thinks are turkeys. <laughs> 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 like storks or something. <laughs> hey, our, our, our wild turkeys down here are pink. <laughs> <laughs> and anatomically, their legs are slightly longer than, than the ones in Alberta. 
Uh, hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, B.C. Get the perfect off-road truck to take your adventures to the next level with Alpine Toyota. They are proud to offer a wide selection of trucks, tires, and services that are sure to meet your needs. Plus, they're dedicated to giving back to the community by supporting us, Ducks Unlimited, and therefore, conservation. With Alpine Toyota, you can drive away with both a great vehicle and peace of mind, knowing that you are making a difference. So, as always, thank you to Alpine Toyota for continuing to support us. Absolutely. Great. And, and Lee's not here to make truck sounds. Truck sounds, pig sounds. He, he makes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pig sounds. So, I, uh, when I went by the dealership the other day, they've got one of those, um, the Toyota um, Tacomas parked out front, a crew cab. Uh, it's got like uh, it's a bit of a lift kit on it and some little bigger tires for, for the bush roads and stuff. It's one of their specialties. But it's that, it's that dark green color. And I don't know if you remember this, Matt, uh, maybe from the days when you used to work in BC, but in the in the 60s and 70s the bc force service had their government force service trucks and they were a very particular green i i remember they had a lot of those trucks and i don't know if it's the same color of green but i remember bc forest service trucks being green and this was in the 90s so i don't know if that was a carryover or another shade of green okay okay yeah it, they they went that late but so so my dad used to work for the forest service and i remember as a little kid uh especially in golden um getting days where i would he'd take me out of school and i would go with him and we'd be in these old green forest service trucks um usually like an international or something and and one ton suspension and yeah course hot and on the the dirt roads in the summertime and the inside of the truck had more dust on it than the outside in the logging road no, no air conditioning but there's just something about that color of yeah. a green truck that just takes me back you know to those memories as a kid and i'm just like i i would like to have one of those trucks that's green just for yeah. that sentimental yeah. reason so very cool. uh yeah, so they, uh, if anybody likes that color, they got uh, one of the Toyota Tacomas and it's got gold rims on it, which looks kind of sweet on the green truck. So give them, give them a shout. Uh, Matt Besco, welcome back to the podcast. Always, always a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, it's so fun. Great conversations. Love, love you guys coming on the show and and uh, making it fun and and a uh, very high level of conversation and knowledge that that you impart and passion for hunting and conservation so today i i want to dive into the translocation of wild turkeys from british columbia over to alberta i did do a quick little research check on this before the show going is it translocation or is it relocation and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in wildlife management, relocation is when the animal is moved from point A to point B within its home range. 
Right. Translocation is when it's moved outside of its home range. So like when they're trying to like establish a new population or something right. somewhere. So would this be a translocation in your opinion? Um, quite likely more so a translocation rather than a relocation because there are parts of Alberta that do not necessarily make uh, or currently would be called or currently occupied by wild turkeys in any way and recent history would suggest that they you know haven't been occupied for some time so in that sense it would be a translocation but if you look at the broader range and, and we're to describe the broader suitable range for wild turkeys it's probably well within that range so you know i think it's either or i wouldn't get hung up on the nomenclature but i would mm. be able to say that there are parts of the range in alberta that are is currently occupied and populated by by wild turkeys and the objective with respect to moving wild turkeys here whether or not it's a translocation or a relocation would be to do two things. One is um, broaden the distribution of wild um, self-reproducing birds in southern Alberta and broaden that distribution to the extent by which subpopulations are connected. And two is to increase the population itself and for a number of reasons. Uh, since the introduction of wild turkeys to the Cypress Hills in the 60s and the natural range, range expansion into Alberta from BC and perhaps even Montana, we don't know, we know that there's a tremendous amount of interest from both landowners and a variety of, of, of outdoor groups expressing a desire to maintain a sustainable population of turkeys here in the province and and mm. I think it's a very good news story um, and and I hope to see those populations of birds flourish well that's um yeah that's that's so refreshing to hear um, because I found that Alberta's has embraced the wild turkey uh, as a game bird, uh, and British Columbia, not so much so. Uh, I, the Okanagan Valley, uh, I know the wildlife managers there have a little different perspective on the wild turkey uh, as far as, you know, a good attitude towards the wild turkey, let's just put it that way, and wanting to know, you know, about hunters and, and you know, bird numbers and, you know, maybe some management and whatnot because hunters want to hunt them and they're enjoying hunting them so they're going okay then this is something we can embrace here in the east kootenai in southeastern bc um not so much so uh, because i think what's happened in southern bc is a turkey population is doing so well in so many areas they've crossed that threshold where they become a pain in a lot of communities, butts, um, Fruitvale, uh, Edgewater, Radium, 
uh, Wycliffe, Kimberly area and stuff, they've taken up residence in, you know, the communities and, you know, of course they can be aggressive and they like to roost on things and they poop and all these things that, that um, people would love to hate about, uh, a, you know, a wildlife. And so then they complain to the wildlife managers and then that's just another, like, you know, phone call in their office and it's the public complaining about wildlife. So that's just kind of a, a headache yeah. for them. And um, so, you know, they're trying to do things here in the Kootenays of increasing the season, increasing the bag limit and stuff of more under the auspices of conflict mitigation and population reduction. Yeah. Vancouver Island, yeah. they, for whatever reason, seem to like hate them and the hunters hate them. And so about four years ago, they introduced a, a regulation in Region 1 on Vancouver Island. No closed season, no bag limit on the wild turkeys. And I believe those populations were established back in the 1930s by the BC Game Commission from Virginia. So I think they're actually Easterns. Yeah. But they don't like them there. So, But in Alberta, you got a management plan. You got, yeah. they're on a permit system and you now have, um, is it the premier, the premier's tag? Yeah. The, the you minister's tag, the minister's tag. Minister's tag. So we have a minister special license that's going to be auctioned this week in Salt Lake, the Western Hunting and Fishing mm -hmm. Expo. And uh, the uh, tremendous amount of interest, both in Alberta and elsewhere to be able to take part in those um, ministers' draws and raffles. I was in Reno for the ministers' draw and helping to promote that uh, for, or the ministers' auction for uh, bighorn sheep, and it went for 375000 U.S. for a single tag. And we haven't seen those kind of revenues come in, which are directly... Um, allocated towards conservation-based projects. We haven't seen those kind of revenues for a long time until, you know, uh, since Sherwood Scott spent 500,000 U.S. two years in a row for Rocky Mountain Bighorn. And then we had a series of years where it was like 160, 170. Last year was 232. Mm. This year it was 375. So minister special license are a big deal with respect to generating conservation-based revenues. Just circling back to turkeys and the interest around those, uh, when you have opportunities like that and you can see that the wait lists for, you know, draw applicants here amongst hunters in Alberta is really long and it takes 14, 15 years to be, get, to be drawn. Uh, in addition to a special license and a raffle and an auction for those types of opportunities, it's, it's, uh, it really contrasts to those jurisdictions that are experiencing a fair amount of wildlife-human conflict. We see, uh, and, and I think Lee, he, he frequently speaks about it when we're hunting together, that in the next 20 or so years, I believe the issues around wildlife-human conflict will increase exponentially for a variety of reasons, not only with respect to an increasing human population, a broadening human distribution and more people out on the landscape in a recreational sense, but in a semi-rural sense, 
uh, homes, domiciles, um, added infrastructure into wildlife habitat. It's going to result into human-wildlife conflicts around bears, birds, cougars, you name it. And we're starting to see this deer, especially towns or refugia and, and small semi, you know, urban environments tend to be refugia because in those places, wildlife generally isn't hunted and hunting is prohibited. So wildlife are very keen to figure that out, wild turkeys included. And they tend to use these as refugia. They poop, they, you know, can be aggressive and all sorts of things. So this is a challenge, not only with turkeys, but for a number of species like deer, and, you know, everything from raccoons, deer, birds, bears, you name it. So I'm not surprised that the issue around turkeys is resulting in a human wildlife conflict. And there may be a depredation element as well in rural environments. But it's something that needs to be balanced with a broader set of interests. And to be able to reintroduce or translocate or, uh, or um, generally move one population or segment of a population of wild turkeys into Alberta will require a great deal of that foresight. So whether or not it's having a plan that will be able to mitigate, effectively mitigate any potential human wildlife conflict, whether or not there is specific depredation level permits that we're able to apply to that, um, and also satisfy the concerns that we have around diseases and, and other potentially zoonotic uh, diseases that are pathogens that may be brought in. Those need to be examined pretty thoroughly before we're prepared to move a bird like this in. That all being said, we do have an interest. We're not at a place by which uh, Albertans are opposed to um, increasing the distribution and abundance of these birds. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. You know, I think there, I, I've been involved in the wild turkey stuff for a couple of decades here in BC and and I know there are individuals, you know, in different places of the province and right through to Victoria that just personally don't like wild turkeys because they're um, non-native. And so I've seen a tremendous amount of misinformation put out there, um, even from government biologists trying to sort of um, demonize the wild turkey and why we shouldn't manage them and you know and stuff in the province and for, for whatever reason that just like bothered me years ago and I spent a tremendous amount of time digging through the scientific literature learning what I could about them and you know a few key things uh, on the topic of diseases one of the things that I learned is there there isn't any diseases that the wild turkeys have that can be transferred to domestic animals. Most of the incidence of disease transfer in wild turkeys, uh, and this is information from the National Wild Turkey Federation, has been cases of wild populations getting infected from domesticated fowl. The disease transfers going that way. Right. Um, 
there's a fear in the ranching community. We had it here in the Kootenays that the wild turkeys can spread coccidiosis to cattle, uh, which apparently is false. Um, they cannot. They, they're, they're a bird and a cow's a mammal and they don't cross diseases in, in that direction. Um, stuff like there was information put out that well, wild turkeys will outcompete the native upland game bird species. And so again, I, you know, I dug into the literature because they moved wild turkeys, as you know, in the big restoration projects in the 50s and 60s, all over the United States, uh, outside of their historic ranges. And for the most part, they never had any documented cases of wild turkeys negatively impacting native upland game bird populations when there were declines of native populations like quail that coincided with increasing turkey populations, what the research actually showed was it's because habitat was being impacted, which favored wild turkeys, which then negatively impacted like quail and bob whites and stuff, removing uh, brush and understory and whatnot. So. Um, you know, things like, well, they would eat, you know, um, endangered amphibians and salamanders and stuff. And it's like, no, their primary, you know, food is seeds, um, forbs and insects and they like spiders, you know, especially. So, so there was a lot of that fear-based stuff here as well, which kind of created the, you know, sort of the we don't like wild turkeys in BC, so we don't want to manage them. And then, you know, it was, I think, 2019 or something when Alberta came out with its wild turkey management plan. I was just like, holy, it's like completely the opposite uh, across, across the Rockies. And is it, do you think it's because the culture's more ranching, you know, outdoor orientated and the idea of that people are used to pheasants and Hungarian partridge? It could be. It also could be that, you know, we don't have the, you know the the density and distribution of birds that would result in uh, any of the conflicts that we see right now. Um, mm. We have such a highly altered landscape with respect to you know agriculture, and uh, at the same time, there's an abundance of a very interesting and useful habitat that we have that I think, you know, we're, we're generally of the feeling that we have smaller populations of turkeys to the, at this level, we're not seeing broad or big complaints around this. I'm sure that once turkey populations are well established and if the density goes up and we, we are getting any sort of complaints that maybe people will shift in their way of thinking around these birds. But I think the onus is on us is to ensure that we're well aware of any potential problems before they exist and have a plan in motion. So how can we deal with these birds? I think given the habitats that currently turkeys may or may not occupy, certainly if we broaden it, they may be more accessible than they are in the Kootenays of BC. 
and any sort of depredation related issues and issues around managing the population may be easier to deal with and i'm i'm guessing at that point but i think it's i think it's based on what our topography and landscape is and uh and and you know we'll 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 see what happens but i i i do believe at this point that albertans are interested many albertans are interested potentially uh, to you know broaden turkey distribution for a, a variety of benefits that we talked about but in addition to that i think we need to be cognizant of potential depredation type issues potential effects on the landscape potential of disease and dispel a lot of the myths and misinformation that is around that and if there are any real risks around avian influenza or back and forth um you know transmission risk to domestic fowl or, or whatever that those are recognized and built into an amendment of the management plan is necessary so i think good planning anticipating what the potential issues may or may not be and and making sure that we're not only well aware of that but if we have actions specified in the management plan that are ready ready to be implemented as they need be i think that's important yeah definitely definitely those are important and and you know for some public input and so you can you know hear some of the things you know before beforehand like you said you have landowners that are interested in having yeah. Yeah. you know flocks on private land which is super interesting I, I did a study here in the Kootenays and and there was a bit of a myth going around here that the ranchers hated wild turkeys and they were like killing them and uh, the entire flocks and just throwing them in their their outdoor wood burners whatever to get rid of the carcasses and I'm like you know I've hunted them and the chances that somebody's going to stand out there with a shotgun and shoot like 40 turkeys is like pretty much zero yeah. um, but interviewing some landowners there were some issues around coming into this time of the year february when calves are born yeah and after weaning and then they start feeding like the grains and stuff you know march or whatever it is that the turkeys then get right into the f the feed troughs and stuff with the cows and they're so aggressive and the calves are small and kind of like they're weirded out by these big birds that the rancher would go out there and it's like there's a flock of turkeys in the troughs and all the calves are standing around going well we can't get we can't get our food yeah. but interestingly enough a lot of landowners said they actually liked them they liked having them on their land for diversity they liked the hunting opportunity that they created for them on the private land and then they also talked about some benefits being that they people reported that they helped with invasive weeds on private land because uh, they like to eat the seeds of high seed bearing plants which are a lot of the invasives and in the late summer when they have the locust outbreaks apparently if you've got a flock of wild turkeys on your property they do a pretty good job of keeping the grasshopper population down wow. so um, there were some benefits that people reported, some positive aspects of it, which I, I found pretty interesting. Yeah, we can, also, we can appeal to uh, 
all sorts of people saying we can even deal with plagues of locusts with turkey yes. production. That's very, yep. very interesting. And I, I think there are some tangible ecological benefits as a result of uh, broadening this population. Philosophically, it quite often reduces itself to, you know, is the species native? Is it not native? And I think that argument is really wearing thin in an altered landscape where we have a number of introduced species, where we're considerably putting a lot of money in the uh, establishment of, you know, pheasant populations in the province, where we're seeing populations of a variety of introduced species from starlings to uh, you know, gray partridges. Uh, and, uh, and what exactly are we managing to and what sort of standard? And many people would argue that we need to be able to restore natural ranges of variability in the diversity that that kind of variability would offer and our fire return cycles have been altered via climate. The broader ecosystem in a developed environment has been altered. We have a number of different invasives uh, that are introduced. Some of them are relatively benign. Others are not. We're trying to deal the, with the ones that are not. Uh, we have a, a significant aquatic invasive species management program where we're trying to keep those species out, like Prussian carp, um, like um, zebra and quagga mussels, species like that. Other species we would term desirable invasives or desirable introduced species. Pheasants would fall along those lines. Turkey would fall along those lines. But if there's a natural range extension, and we're seeing birds from Montana come north and birds from B.C., come east then you know who are we to say um this introduction is is um, with a non-native bird we quite often manage to value and not necessarily to species so if we yeah. value and we and if we value a species and we value its use and the benefits of that species would offer then we would encourage that proliferation if that species does not offer that value or if it's a broader threat to biological diversity to conservation or as a vector to some sort of a pathogen then you know we would deal with it as such but you know to argue at this point in a landscape that has millions of human beings on it and infrastructure capital roads agriculture um, all sorts of development to be able to argue that we're returning to a pristine, naturally functioning set of ecosystems, I think is, is, is unrealistic at this point. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I, I, I recall learning about them from the reintroductions and introductions in the United States is there was this fear about wild turkeys out competing upland game birds, especially ruffed grouse. But they actually, even though they're, they're in close proximity on the same landscape, they still 
occupy a different niche in their preferred food species, their preferred habitats, where they roost, how they move on the landscape, that the fears of wild turkeys decimating rough grouse populations was pr is pretty much kind of like a non-issue in the right. scientific literature uh, around them. And um, I think there, there was the issue of uh, egg dumping, the turkeys putting their eggs in rough, rough grouse nests and then leaving them. And if I remember right, there was one documented case somewhere in the United States that that happened. But for the most part, um, it's not wild turkey moms are like, it's a pretty serious business uh, yeah. in selecting their nests and looking after them. And, you know, it's like a 24 week process or, you know, 24 day process of laying all the eggs and stuff. And, and so, again, that's like another kind of like impact um, myth, you know, I guess around them. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I love the wild turkey so much in, in hunting them. And, you know, I was, I wasn't trying to say like justify my love for hunting wild turkeys to say that they're okay here, but I was objectively looking at everything and it was like, they seem to be fitting in pretty good. Yeah. And Idaho the state of Idaho, the wild turkey is considered a native species right? because they have an archaeological site of modern Malagrius that predates the last ice age. They knew it was there before the Wisconsin glaciation period. Yeah. yeah. Montana did not. So they're considered non-native in Montana and right next door in little Idaho, they're considered native based on one archaeological find. So... Yeah. I, I've often thought, well, like, well, I think I measured it and it was like bare, barely 100 kilometers from the BC border. And it's yeah. like, well, they could have been up here too just before the glaciers rolled down or they could oh, have been in Montana and, or Alberta. It's like so. And, and, and who says that the rules around what's native and non-native, you know, occurs post or pre-glaciation? Uh, I mean, I've heard the same sort of arguments around, you know, feral horses and the like is, you know, they were native, but they were native so many thousands of years ago. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm less and less inclined to use, you know, temporal variables to define what's native and non-native. And, you know, nature is such a complex set of uh, different systems that are overlapping and bisecting and and time is one element space is another elevation and topography are all sorts of other variables that we play with um, when you look at the cypress hills it's a it's a refugia glacial refugia that wasn't necessarily touched by glaciation and you have species there like McGillivray's warblers, which are generally found found in montane and alpine environments, and they're surrounded, and Cypress Hills are surrounded by these grasslands, and you have this, you know, field of, or this uplift of pine and, and other species. So, you know, is it native, is McGillivray's warbler native to, geographically speaking, to you know, south southeastern Alberta, 
or is it a montane, you know, appendage that is translated over, you know, translocated over. And it really muddies the waters with respect to the argument over what's native and what isn't native. And we're applying political and sociological boundaries to this as well. So the Idaho, Montana, BC is just another, you know, artificially set of boundaries, what's native and what's non-native provincially. Quite likely the range was well outside that 100 kilometers in one way or another. And right. it's arbitrary to, to say, oh, well, we're not going to manage the species because, you know, it was 100 kilometers outside of our political border that was established in 1905 or wherever. So I, 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 would, I would say that let's look at introductions, translocations, natural increases in ranges. Let's look at them from an ecological point of view and a value point of view. And if we, if we don't reduce it down into boundaries that are artificial and we look at it in a, in a broader sense and apply what sort of values that we do place on the importance of these species, then I think we're in a better place than just being able to say it's not, you know, necessarily a binary decision and and we would say yes or no. It's native, therefore it's gone. It's non-native, therefore, you know, this. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a weak argument. Yeah, no, I, I agree too. Um, what I've always looked at at the wild turkey is it is a native bird to North America. Yes. And there's five subspecies. If Europeans never showed up here, the glaciers receded, tens of thousands of years went by, ecosystems were created, you know darn well that whitetails would have eventually found their way to the boreal forest. We know the wild turkey would have eventually found the, its way up the Rocky Mountains from the southwest and ponderosa pine trees or ponderosa pine trees. And, you know, um, their time to get here may have been tens of thousands of years slower than people moving them, but I just think the North American continent is just so accessible to wildlife that given enough time, you know, without the human alterations on the landscape, wildlife would have occupied every corner of this continent um, where there was a good chunk of ground for, I think it was in Dr. one of Dr. Val Geist's books, yeah. he talked about bison and one of the theories, the prevailing theories around bison is before the Europeans decimated the North American population, they were actually expanding northward and had that not happened, I believe he said the bison would have found them their way naturally all the way into Alaska. Yeah, I, so. I, don't, I don't doubt that. North America is uniquely geographically and physiographically suited for north-south migrations because of the orientation of our mountain ranges whereas at and and what's really interesting about that is because you know latitudinally you know we're far more governed by seasons and a north-south movement south-south movement to escape harsher conditions is much more readily available in North America than it would be in somewhere like Europe that has an east-west um, arrangement in terms of, of mountains. 
So mm. I think that is Jared really Diamond's reflected. Guns, yeah. Gun yeah. steel and yeah, yeah, he yeah, talks guns about steel. And that has really supported the diversity of North American wildlife and the distribution of North American wildlife. And North America is really blessed in that regards. And the people that live here are blessed in that regards to be able to enjoy that. So I, w I would say that species, whether or not they would naturally occur, whether or not climate would be the same or, you know, one thing or another would lead to a broader expansion or whitetails in the boreal is neither here nor there. But, you know, that being said, I think we look at what our environment is, we look at what we believe, what sort of quality of life we would like to see in our environment as human beings, as well as respecting natural ecological structure, function, spatial orientation, and the diversity. And we're never going to be able to get it spot on or right, because we can't do things like protect predict natural ranges of variability um, and we can't produce food on a on the scale that we do in order to feed a human population without altering the environment in some way nor can we achieve goods and services and energy and water without altering our environment in order to help produce those goods for us so we look to particular values that we want to maintain and systems that we want to maintain and we try to to optimize the benefits of all of those. And, and there's no way that we're able to optimize everything for everyone all the time. But I think we're able to um, use particular elements in our systems and respect the values that those elements would provide us, such as turkeys, such as pheasants, such as, you know, a number of other species. And including our, many of our natural species and the systems around that and be able to manage them as such. And uh, I think we're naive if we believe that we can master nature in any way. Um, but at the same time, there are values such as turkeys, such as a number of other species that we can manage towards and maintain those benefits for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So... When this story first in British Columbia first kind of came about that the province was going to move, I think, 200 turkeys from the East Kootenai, southeastern BC to Alberta. Curtis, do you remember hearing that or did, did you ever hear anything from your friends about that? Um, asking you about it or what their opinions were? Or? No, <clears throat> no, not that I can recall. Okay. Interesting, because I've had a few, a few people sort of immediately like pinged me, and it's like, what are your thoughts on this? And and people are like, hey, are you around? I want to give you a phone call and find out about, you know, this. And so, it's it's a little maybe controversial, uh, maybe around the Cranbrook area, anywhere's you know where where I live, uh, over where Curtis lives, they don't. It's not a big turkey culture there because we don't have as many turkeys in the Elk Valley as as uh, the East Kootenai Trench area. But I didn't get a chance to talk to too many people and kind of dig into it. But kind of the main fear was is I think they they just thought that they were going to go out and start rounding them up off of like just general crown land to get rid of 
wild turkeys in southern BC and rather than culling them then they were they were moving them over to Alberta but Matt you can fill us in on kind of everything you know about it from the province's perspective but I understand it's it they're coming from the problem communities yes and this is the approach yeah and, and it's coordinated and I don't know enough about the actual you know um movement efforts because the Alberta Conservation Association is tasked with that but those birds are coming my understanding from some of the communities that have had uh, conflict situations are being trapped held examined and then moved over so uh, I don't think that this is uh, in any way going to result in the extirpation of birds on the BC side <laughs> whatsoever. I think then there's an abundance of birds. Um, and, in, and in fact, fewer birds means less competition and you get this compensatory response, density dependent response that uh, you may actually stimulate the reproductive capacity of some of these birds. But, you know, I don't know that for sure. Um, that being said, when you do move birds over into a relatively new environment, what often happens in nature is you have a founder effect, especially when the habitat is suitable. And we've seen that in things like elk. When elk were reintroduced to S Canadian Forces Base Suffield in the 90s, and I think there was you know 175 or 200 elk, I moved on there, and, and then it resulted in 8,000 elk after a number of years. So that's a classic example of what we would call a founder effect. So if the habitat is good and there's very little predation involved and you have a newly expanding niche with little competition, then birds should flourish. They should really flourish. There may be some limiting factors, anything from a harsh winter, ability of these birds to learn to adapt to a new environment to the potential for you know encountering any sort of pathogen to increase levels of, of predation but generally there's a time by which predators need to learn to um, prey on a new new species and in that time that founder effect tends to take hold and the population tends to establish itself fairly quickly uh, once an equilibrium is reached and once predators figure out how to, you know, kill and eat these things and um, there are some limiter, limiting factors that may take hold uh, in terms of climate related or weather dependent or whether or not there's a wildlife conflict in play, that generally tends to occur once a population uh, will increase to a particular level afterwards there's a threshold and then you see some of the effects of the of this limiting um, uh, set of variables so we'll mm. see we'll see how that plays out i hope that there is a founder effect and there's a good establishment and a toehold that's achieved and quite often depending on the type of of um relocation or translocation um, the habitat may not be suitable you may be dropping them in and it may be just a mortality sink 
and that for some for one reason or another the habitat and the birds just didn't get along or there was no ability for those birds to adapt and that population may tap out relatively quickly and then you have to try it again somewhere else right interesting and I, I was scanning the literature to try to learn a little bit about you know wild turkey translocations and and you know what researchers have found uh, a fair bit of it seems to come out of Texas yeah. and one paper uh, a finding or a recommendation that kind of stood out to me was the birds that are relocated somewhere or translocated somewhere if they have to start traveling a lot of of the time like our longer distances to kind of find that real like ideal habitat that they're happy with their survival goes down yeah and they said uh let me see i, I wrote it down here um the researchers results suggested that translocations to areas with wild turkeys present may be a strategy to minimize movements and improve survival yeah so it sounded like when you plunked birds down near existing, like augmenting existing populations, the existing birds have already went, hey, this is some pretty good places to live. Yeah. The other turkeys go, yeah, this is pretty good. Hey, do you mind if we hang out? Their overall survival's better. But if you throw them up there and the turkeys are like, we don't really like where you put us and they got to start searching around, then they they get picked off and, and whatnot. So Yeah, I think that's, I, that's I, good I thought that was interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. And there are populations of wildlife that have been moved to an area that generally doesn't. That elk example is one of them. Um, but, you know, there, I, I would say that there's probably not only the proximity aspect to existing populations that would hold birds, but also quite likely something around that habitat as well that is both suitable and capable to maintain those populations of birds there. And because of that, you could, you could show persistence. Once populations increase to a given event, generally what happens is dispersal. And once habitats are saturated or abundant, or I hate to use carrying capacity because carrying capacity, especially in many of our habitats here in Canada, is all, uh, quite often this nebulous, oh, we're going to reach K and everything's going to go south. I think K is overstated in, in, in working biology a lot of the time. But I think that once populations occur at a given density, you probably are, are able to see more dispersal and range extensions. And that may very well occur uh, in wild turkeys. But I don't know for sure. And uh, this is part of the, the interesting thing about active wildlife management is it's an adaptive process and you learn by trying. And if you can establish a population and that population obtains a, a toehold in an environment, that is suitable, capable, minimize wildlife human conflict. You're not altering that system significantly and you're able to enjoy those birds in one way or another or hunt them. 
I think that's great, but you won't know unless you actually try and then learn adaptively. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's definitely true. You, you don't like to, you know, invest all this money and move birds and then, you know, have a population, you know, fizzle out on you and go, well, we've learned from that. Now we've got to try it, try it again. But, yeah. but I mean, that truly is adaptive management. It, it's not random and you just like, oh, let's just like, tr you know, throw ideas out and put some there and put some there. Like, I mean, people are really like, you know, understand, you know, is yeah. this good habitat? Like when, when they moved them in the U.S., like when they started moving populations around, they knew that the Miriams, wild turkey, which is what we're talking about here, the subspecies, was a southwestern it was it was known as the rocky mountain bird it had an affinity for the ponderosa pines of the far south or the southwest and so then they started ecologically looking at the maps elsewhere in the united states going where do rocky mountain ponderosa pine forests occur and then it was like this followed the rocky mountains right. all the way up to idaho and montana and then so they started plunking birds down then interesting little things like the Rio Grande subspecies uh, was more of um, like a riparian, deserty, yeah. sagebrushy type bird, and they identified a small ecosystem in the Spokane Valley, where their wine growing region that met all those criteria, and they plunked a little Rio Grande population down there. So in the Spokane Valley area of Washington, they've got both Miriams and the Rios. And wow. one of the things is those two subspecies will hybridize. Right. And I had a National Wild Turkey Federation biologist confirm from photographs that somebody sent me from the Southern Okanagan that we had or have or had to, um, the hybrid Rio Miriams in British Columbia as well. And, and so the level of understanding of habitat niches for these subspecies is pretty sophisticated. Yeah. And I'm sure Doug and crew from the ACA and stuff will be plugged into that. And, oh, for sure. And, They're um, not going to be, you know, willy nilly dumping birds all over the place uh, without doing their homework. And, Kind of like one one every half a kilometer yeah, down yeah, 22x yeah. or something there. Yeah, <laughs> just you know, pitch them out the pitch them out the truck window. Yeah, you know, on a windy to, day, let them yeah, disperse. Doug, Doug is an upland <laughs> bird researcher by training. Uh, Sharptails has a PhD on sharptail grouse and is really quite astute. So he will do his homework and look at the viability of uh, different sites to plant birds. And I know that he's worked with landowners to uh, look at sites that are within the range and current distribution as well. And being able to work with those landowners is, is going to be really important because there's a steward in place. And, you know, the cost of monitoring these birds is, you know, going to be significant. But if you have someone that's on site and a landowner that's willing uh, to accept these birds on their on their uh, ranches or, or private lands and then being able to show an active interest 
advocacy and sense of stewardship is really, really important. So I think Doug, by being able to do that, is showing a lot of good foresight. And, uh, and I think that will aid in, in terms of the success where we don't have to, you know, learn from a disaster, so to speak. It's, a, it's an educated, <laughs> it's an educated, well thought out uh, process. Um, but I do like the idea of pitching stuff out every half click and, you know, way we could do that. Yeah, you know, especially especially <laughs> at the end of the day on yeah. a Friday and uh, you still got like 100 birds like to get rid of. <laughs> You what know, and you're under contract you, uh, to the government. Yeah. What was that thing uh, you I and just I talked about? Not... Oh, oh sorry. Go ahead, Matt. No, no, no I just remember as a, uh, as a student when I worked for Fish and Wildlife in the late 80s, uh, one of my summer jobs is, is to uh, help with the local biologist. And part of that program was releasing pheasants in urban environments. So I was here in Edmonton and... And uh, we invited the press, and there's a bunch of photographers, and we had this pheasant truck, and we we're going to release pheasants into Alberta's River Valley, and uh, in order to encourage, you know, appreciation of these birds and, and wildlife. And at the bottom was this big rec center and swimming pool with this big concrete wall. And I remember, you know, okay, Matt, <laughs> throw the doors open, and then throw the doors open on these pens that would be strapped to this truck and these birds would come flying out and they'd be going down the hill and as they're going down the hill they would flare and then they would hit the wall of this rec center bam and die right on the spot <laughs> with the press there and i just it was it was not the best spectacle it's like okay we're gonna try another area and uh it's, yeah so don't panic it's adaptive yeah. management folks yes 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 <laughs> Like, what are you doing with those birds? Well, we'll have to gather them and sample them. Make sure they're very tasty. What what was the one you were thinking about, Curtis? Oh, I was going to say, you and I were were sitting there the one day talking about that, uh, the WKRP skit where they were giving away the the turkeys out of the helicopter. Yeah, you remember that old show back (laughs) from the 70s, 80s, the radio station, WKRP Cincinnati, where they were going to do a. a Thanksgiving turkey giveaway promotion for the radio station, and they bought like these live turkeys. And then the event was at at the parking lot of a mall, and the the owner of the radio company had all these turkeys in a helicopter, and then they were going to just throw them out to the waiting crowd below. And if you caught a turkey, and the news reporter was standing there, and it was like he he's reporting on these, and these turkeys were coming out and then hitting the pavement and exploding like. Like bags of wet cement, less Nesman. <laughs> less and, Nesman. And, yeah. uh, and and then at the end of the whole show, and the owner and the and the sales promotion guy come back into the office, and they're all like beat up and covered in feathers, and <laughs> and they said, "For the love of God, I didn't know turkeys couldn't fly." <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, uh, but you know, one of the things. I've been thinking about this project, which will be kind of interesting for an adaptive management approach, is the fact that the birds are coming from an urban area in BC. And so these are like urban deer, urban turkeys. They they become the problem because they've taken up residence in the communities. 
Um, they're not just sort of passing through or coming and going. They're they're nesting in successive generations. They're learning to live in town. Like you said at the beginning of the show, Matt, you can't hunt them in the town. Predation's reduced. Life is pretty good. And from an adaptive management perspective, uh, I know when it's deer and they've relocated deer out of communities, they have an affinity for another community. Yeah. And they moved a bunch of mule deer out of the town of Cranbrook where I live and they sent them to the very south end of the Kootenays near the Montana border. And then a little while later, they were getting phone calls from the Montana Fish and Wildlife. And it's like, your deer are in our town. And I remember one, it was this mule deer doe, because they got the ear tags, wandered into a bar down in somewhere in Post Falls, or not in Idaho, um, um, Montana somewhere, a little saloon. And the they couldn't get the deer out and they're like come and get your deer we're gonna have to shoot it (laughs) and and so that story sticks in my mind when i'm thinking about moving these flocks of urban turkeys out of the out of the conflict zone to hopefully a semi-rural wild place in alberta that these birds don't you know one day wandering around and say look houses (laughs) yeah yeah and uh or, or, or even worse, a, a sign for a saloon somewhere in Pincher Creek, and all these turkeys lined <laughs> up at the bar, <laughs> and falling off their bar, bar stools, and yeah, that I don't know the extent by which, you know, um, birds can be habituated. I'm sure that they can. Um, whether or not these birds are going to end up going from one town to the next is is another question the hopefully you know that being said hopefully wherever the translocation will occur will be a long ways away from you know a significant human settlement there likely will be you know ranches and farmsteads and buildings and things and birds will naturally go to these areas because of cover and refugia. Um, but I don't think that they're, they're likely, if they become problematic, difficult to deal with in terms of removal. But in terms of probability of success, yeah, if that's not working and we're taking habituated birds and moving them to another place by which they will continue that sort of behavior and then move into a town, um, that's... That's something we can certainly learn from. And then we could track yeah. wild birds or learn to do that. I don't know whether or not that's the case for turkeys or not. Not aware. Yeah, that 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 will be an interesting one, I think time time will tell. Yeah. I, I remember a wildlife manager here sh- talking about the problem with wild turkeys in residence in the community of Fruitvale. Uh, west of west of Cranbrook and the landowner the homeowner the property owner was sending pictures to the wildlife manager and complaining about all these turkeys and he said here this is what I'm this is the problem I'm dealing with and he showed me this picture on his computer screen 
and the guy takes a picture out his living room window on his front lawn and his car's parked in the driveway and there's literally like 50 or 60 turkeys and all of these big toms strutting right in his front lawn and I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like so what's the problem no. <laughs> he didn't think that he didn't think that was too funny no no <laughs> I'm like, and, and oh, it, man, if I had that on my property, I'd be happy. Yeah. But um, that, That's what you talk about, the values, right? Um, yeah. You know, there can be values of hunters, but something like this is the broader values to even the non-hunting community. Have to have an appreciation for them, kind of fall in love with them, uh, be excited when they see them, when they go for a drive, if they happen to stroll through town or or whatever, like, say, that's pretty cool. They're a I, massive bird and be kind and, of excited and, about it, even if they aren't hunters. Yeah, and, and beautiful. And if they are problematic, there's ways of dealing with them. And there's, you know, we could always trap it and move them. We can depopulate places. If there's an aggregation of 30 or 40 birds around someone's um home and or you know acreage there's ways that we can depopulate that population and prevent that from occurring again uh, and do so f relatively easily um, but I think the the longer more valuable is is your process that would be involved is coexistence and that's learning to develop a sense of appreciation for these birds learning to accept them as being a broader part of the, our environment and something that's really cool and neat to see understanding their ecology their behavior and taking measures by which you can minimize that wildlife human conflict that would be great for some people they'll always be an annoyance and a pest and there's ways of dealing with that and for other people like yourself i mean and, and myself, I'd love to see that. I would love to be able to live in a place where you would see wild turkeys and deer and a variety of other critters. I remember one, one morning I was going duck hunting in Creston. I was getting there relatively late. I was coming in from Nelson, and I was going through a pumpkin farm in, in October, and the sun was just coming up. And it hit this pumpkin farm, and there's this line of turkeys walking through these pumpkins in October. And if you could ever have the most perfect Thanksgiving photograph, you had this light at an acute angle hitting these brilliant turkeys and these bright orange pumpkins on this golden field. And of course, before the days of cell phones or anything like that, I had a shotgun, but I didn't have a camera. And... Uh, it would have been spectacular, but yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Yeah, they are, um, they are a pretty cool bird. Uh, and, but they are, uh, I've covered stories on the round Canada podcast kind of about this over the years, you know, across Canada, they're kind of like the Canada goose there. There's kind of like two groups of Canadians, uh, love them or hate them. Yeah. And it seems like if you're like your hunters, we tend to love these birds and we put up with things that they do when they're around. 
if you're not a hunter and they congregate where you want to be and they poop, you hate them. That, that, that seems to be, in a nutshell, the Canada goose story. It seems to be the wild turkey story. There was a case in Montreal uh, where a group of turkeys there took up roosting in some big trees at a daycare playground. And, of course, all night long they're pooping, you know, and then the next day they turn the kids loose in the playground and people were all freaked out and they wanted the, wanted the turkeys gone or whatever, so... I, I think southern Alberta, where these birds are living in the foothills, uh, in the, in that whole stretch there, there's a lot of wild country for them to there exist is. and there just is. scattered scattered homes. And the communities, um, you know, like Blairmore and Coleman and stuff, very small, small yeah. towns. I mean, you can see, you know, natural wilderness on this side of the valley and on the other side of the town and the town's kind of sandwiched in between they're, they're pretty small yeah i don't i can't see those being the types of communities where you would have urban problems with turkeys no. so because no. there isn't a whole lot of urban <laughs> no and and as you said the private lands around there people aren't just owning a quarter acre here and a half acre there it's thousands of acres, several sections. It's contiguous. You have one landowner and big expanses. So the probability of them becoming um, problematic is relatively low. That being said, uh, you never know where these birds are going to end up and what's going to happen. But I think, uh, you know, all things considered, I think it would be a, a good news story. I think expanding the range, the opportunity by which people could view, hunt, and enjoy these birds would be greatly appreciated by broader Albertans. Absolutely. I, I agree. And the fact of the matter, in British Columbia, there are the communities where the, the problem is, is pretty significant with the number of birds yeah. uh, in on in Marysville on the way to Kimberley just north of where where I am like they'll stop traffic on the roads and they've put up signs turkey crossing signs because there's that many turkeys that are crossing from one side to the other that the traffic has to come to a stop in the morning commute and stuff while all these turkeys are going by and and that that annoys people and it always bothers me when when wildlife and what they do in their behaviors and their numbers reach a point where society becomes intolerant to them because yeah. intolerance usually leads to persecution. And that's right. people wanting to take matters into their own hands, which is when we see pictures of animals with crossbow bolts stuck, you know, and yeah. y you know, those are just, you know, and traps on Bobcat's foot and those sorts of things. Um, and, and so I never, I never like that because if you want to look at it from the perspective of animal welfare, once you reach that point where society's losing its tolerance, you need to do something. And in this case, I think we, we passed that point in BC. Right. They had one choice, which they were exploring years ago is how to cull these things. So, you know, I, I even heard plans of like, well, they wanted to use the clover traps that they used to catch the urban deer. Right. And, I, and I, I talked people out of that going, God, if you want to have a WKRP disaster yeah. drop in yeah. those 
big nets down with the wide mesh and birds flailing away and broken wings and stuff. It's like they have special nets and net guns and stuff that they use in the U.S. Like, like at least do it properly and yeah. do it humanely. Um, and then dispatch the birds and make sure that people can take them and eat them. Like that was the choice. And as soon as you know, as a wildlife manager, as soon as a call is is officially called a call or a depopulation or whatever, that's when everybody's going to love these things, right? And uh, and yeah. then and then you're dealing with this this PR nightmare. So what is so the... to me, what's happening is moving them to Alberta. I I do I see this as as a good thing. It's not controversial. It's not taking away from the birds that I would get to hunt. But I'm happy that they're going to go to Alberta. What is the current uh, hunting opportunity like for turkeys in the east and west Kootenays? Is, um, it, is, it, is it on a draw? Oh, is it unlimited? Or is it open yeah, it's, by a license? It's terrible. Or? It's terrible here in the Kootenays. Um, there's hardly any turkeys like in, out in, on the Crown land. Um, if you're from out of pr- province, uh, a tag is like, is like $2,000 uh, for a turkey tag here uh, in southeastern BC. Uh, it's free if, if Curtis and I want to go. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, de- I'm, de- I'm de-promoting know. it. I know, I know. So, um, no, uh, it's the exact opposite. So our wild turkeys are classified as an upland game bird. If you are a non-resident in British Columbia, you can come and hunt them. Uh, as a DIY hunt, you need a British Columbia non-resident unrestricted license and the Upland Game Bird license. And you can come here and do a DIY hunt all on your own. Wow. And what's the uptake uh, among residents? There, there, at, w- at one time when I was uh, living in the Kootenays, there was considerable demand to be able to hunt, you know, turkeys. And uh, I I don't remember. Th- were they on LEH back then? They, the they were. Yeah. They were in the 90s when they first yeah. decided with those populations that were over in the Nelson area where you lived were now huntable. Yeah. They put them on LEH. And then I think they quickly realized that there was no need to be yeah. conservative. They weren't a species of conservation concerns to have the strict controls of a permitted hunt. And they went to the open, the general open season in the spring. Right. Uh, of one bearded turkey starts on April 15th, goes through till um, May 15th. And then they opened up a couple of shortened seasons for any turkeys in the fall um an archery season starting in early september and then an october hunting uh shotgun uh season as well uh, for any bird and then recently in the last couple years they upped the bag limit for the fall hunt too Wow. So here in southeastern BC in region 4 Kootenay region 4 right you could take three turkeys one in the springtime that's bearded and then two other birds in the fall very interesting very interesting yeah uh, so i remember once when i was and this is a long long time ago i was taking the ferry from uh well, it's the Herrick proctor ferry so you go up you know 
go up on the west arm of Kootenay Lake, and then you hit Kootenay Lake, and you go north, and then you uh, hit the Herrick Proctor Ferry, and then you take the ferry across, and, and the ferry is quite small, and on the ferry landing on the other side, the Herrick side, there's there's this big Tom turkey sitting there, and I was on the ferry, and ferry comes forward and this turkey would not move. There's no one on the other side waiting to take the ferry back. So the ferry captain just blows on the horn like wah where you could almost see the feathers on the bird you know <laughs> going and this turkey would not move. It would not move for anything. So he waited, 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 hazing, yelling, trying to move the turkey would not move. Then eventually the ferry captain just lowered the, you know, front of the ferry over onto the bird. And that was the end of that bird. So, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turkey schnitzels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Matt gets off and he's like waiting till the ferry to leave to <laughs> pick up the, yeah, to pick up the turkey. <laughs> I, I did look at that turkey. It was, um. It, it was kind of like, you know, the road runner and Wiley Coyote and something falls on the coyote and he's flat as a pancake. And, and he's like yeah, flat, yeah, as a pa yeah. flat as a pancake. Yeah. Gosh, there, something must have been wrong with it to not, not Yeah, move. I don't know. I don't it know. just didn't want to go. Huh. That's, Pride goeth that's, before the fall. That's funny. <laughs> However, if you do choose to come to the Kootenays and hunt wild turkeys, so so two things yes they're like elk you can come through the kootenai region of british columbia in the winter time and there's freaking elk all over the place you can see them in farmers fields from on the side of the highway they're running across the road in front of you and you're just like oh my gosh this is going to be just amazing to come back here in the fall and hunt them well when they leave the winter range and they go back into the mountains, you can come here for 10 days and hunt elk and swear that there is no elk at all in the region. And turkeys yeah. are the same way. They have the big winter flocks. They're low. They're usually in eye shot of the highways, especially in agriculture fields around the cattle operations. And you'll see these giant winter flocks of like 60 and 100 turkeys and you're just like man i'm gonna come back in two months and to the kootenays and hunt wild turkey and then you'll spend a week here and not see or hear a turkey because they just they bust into little tiny groups uh come april and then they they scatter all over the landscape and you can put on 10 15 kilometers a day scouring the hills trying to find a gobbler and it's so it's challenging or they, sure they or they're permanently stuck on the private land and cattle operations and don't oh, yeah, leave yeah, they, they know they've done <laughs> yeah they followed the land surveyors around <laughs> they know they know Sorry, those buddy, little not white posts are <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i had one one spring like four great big toms and they were on the private land and the and the the rancher had one of those 12 foot elk fences and I'm, I'm on the other side because usually they're on one side or the other. That morning they happen to be on the private land side. 
they come waltzing up the fence line on the inside and they see my decoys out there on the hillside and they just went nuts back and forth along the fence and they were looking to figure out how to get underneath of it and i'm for like i'm sitting there going for the love of god (laughs) (laughs) it's like you have wings just fly (laughs) over the fence and come and check out my decoys but anyways they just got frustrated and said the hell with it yeah and wandered off so fun fun times Matt, um, thanks so much for for imparting your your thoughts and passions for reintroducing or translocating wild turkeys into Alberta and bracing them. Uh, I think that's that's super cool, and I'm super excited for uh, for the future. And hopefully, you know what what I would dream of in Alberta is someday there is a resident population that's large enough in southern Alberta that you can have some general open seasons. Yeah. Um, Cause for poor folks to be on a priority draw system of which I hear many people say it's a once in a lifetime shot for a wild turkey yeah. in Alberta. Yeah. Um, I just feel so blessed that Curtis and I can go out every year and we can find gobblers every year, you know, here, uh, whether we get one or not, doesn't really matter, but uh, it's like elk hunting. It's just, if you can gobble them and you can hear them gobble and have those experiences, you know, like, that's that's what it's all about and i just would love a day where where um more albertans could just go out and take their kids out and just have that pure excitement of like oh my god it's coming he's coming it's coming and i hope so so i hope so too thank you and thanks so much for you and curtis to be able to share the experiences and many of the issues that are that have and are occurring in BC because that gives us a lot of insight into what potentially may or may not happen here in Alberta and be able to deal with this and to build it into our management plans and strategies mm-hmm. as we move forward. And that that is really important to us as well because we do want to be able to have that opportunity. We want to be able to hunt and enjoy these birds and at the same time time to do so responsibly and respect you know landowners rural municipalities um and other people that have to live on the landscape and uh and it's only because of dealing with other jurisdictions and people like yourselves that are able to speak to some of these issues that we're able to to gain insight and and move forward so i really appreciate that as well no yeah, you're welcome. We have a we have a special place in our heart for the wild turkeys. So uh, I have a special exciting. place in my stomach for wild turkeys. And <laughs> yes, that is that species. is a that is another another good place for them. They are so you'll you'll hear people and old timers say you know the the old joke about well the way you, the way you cook a wild turkey yeah, is yeah. is you put it in a pot of water with some with rocks, rocks and after six yeah. hours yeah throw the turkey wing and it's like totally false yeah absolutely false same things um, with sandhill cranes here in the whole works and that's oh okay you know yeah we've we've had sandhill crane and it's pretty darn good it's yeah. like a venison backstrap yeah mm-hmm. um so so i i will say one of the things i've learned for cooking wild turkeys through adaptive management 
is I've never had success cooking the turkey whole, like your Thanksgiving turkey, right. because they're wild birds and they work hard for a living. They have very powerful, muscular, yeah. sinuous and fibrous legs and thighs, not like the domestic birds. So that does not roast very well. Yeah. So what I always do is separate all of that, and that goes to a slow cooker, and then you pull pull the meat right. off, stews, soups, turkey tacos, yeah. those types of dishes like a pulled a pulled meat, yeah. and a then con, the breast confit, meat, confit and fat and yep, yeah, yep, exactly. Um, but the breast meat, you can cook a breast, you can smoke a breast, you can uh, make schnitzels, and it's it's as beautiful white turkey meat breast meat as the domestic birds that's great. amazing great to hear so yeah no it's uh i i i would love if more people could could experience how you know how good the table fare of a wild turkey is and dispel some of those notions as well that's uh great. thanks matt for coming on and thank you telling us as about always this this project a pleasure cool um the last thing i'll say unless curtis has maybe he had this in his in his outro speaking of turkey hunting if you are new to turkey hunting and you want to learn about it we have the wild turkey hunting master class which is an online class that you can take just go to our website thehunterconservationist.com on the home page at the bottom you'll see the wild turkey master class I think it's uh, eight hours of content on absolutely everything you can think of about hunting wild turkeys and the Miriam's wild turkey in southern BC. So two months to get ready for that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you probably had that down. That no, I didn't actually. I'm just okay. I was Good. Just kind of going through my notes on what to touch on, and uh, and that was one All that right. I didn't have. So thank you. Well, there you go. Awesome. Okay, take her away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. As always, we're grateful for the support that Alpine Toyota is giving us, helping us bring you guys great conversations like the one we just had with Matt Besco about wild turkeys. Hunting is an important part of Canada's culture and heritage. The Hunter Conservationist is dedicated to preserving the future of hunting in Canada through education and advocacy. We would like to invite you to join the Hunter Conservationist community, gain exclusive uh, access to two podcasts, bonus content, and a discussion board of like-minded, conservation-orientated individuals. Join us today and be a part of the movement to protect our hunting heritage for generations to come. You can join the Hunter Conservationist community at patreon.com slash the hunter conservationist so we just we i don't if for listeners that haven't seen we've just revamped and redone our website so there's links to all that stuff plus more cool stuff new photos sleeker more modern look so go check it out and that's just at the hunter conservationist.com so have a look over there browse about absolutely Learn a little bit about us, a little bit more about us, if you if you don't know. Appreciate Excellent. it. And, um, hey, the last thing, this is a message for Dr. Lee Foote, because you weren't on the show. 
Um, we cannot be held responsible or liable for any statements that were made uh, against you during this episode. If you would like to formally submit a complaint or a rebuttal to anything that Matt said, um, you can email those for our consideration at hcmedia at thehunterconservationist.com <laughs> or you can give me a phone call and tell me your version of the story and how Matt sees it all wrong. So Yeah, it's, I'm sure he's going to rebut something. He's insecure and, and needs to needs to state his piece. And yeah, I've, I've got a number you can call Lee, like 1-800 don't bother something like that so it's all good <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we do want to get that gator tail drink, drink yeah, from him yeah. so we'll 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 wait we'll uh, we'll entertain that cool yeah all right everybody take care yeah thanks and we'll see you in the next episode <laughs> <laughs>